The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Rabbi, your word is precious to us. Is full of great promises, the passage that we just heard read, in particular full of reassuring, great, deep promises. You, a refuge, a shield, protector to us. Thank you for this promise, for this fact. And would you now, as, as we consider it, as we think about it, look at it more deeply, will you move through this room and press it into us for our rest and for our joy? These are concepts that in many ways we are familiar with and in some ways, in some settings, don't rest in and don't rejoice in as you would want us to. You told us so that we'll know, and you told us so that we'll be happy and content at peace in you. And so will you accomplish that second work also? Work in our hearts. Assure us and comfort us. And also, Father, will you draw out from us worship? Because this is about, as many of these psalms in this section of, of your word are about, this is about, in, in a real way, it is about your reign, about your might, and your tender love for us. So draw from us worship, not just, not just the experience of rest, but worship in rest. You are the one who is mighty, and you are the one who is for us, your people. So we say thank you. Help us to hear Spirit of God, will you own this moment now? Will you own the words that I say? Will you own, own the, the hearing? Will you own the atmosphere? Will you, will you cast out all distraction? Will you give us focus? Will you give us sight? Help us to see the God who is, and the God who is ours, and the God who is good. Show him to us. Build us up. Save Build your church and honor Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. A number of years back, two popular Christian books came out that created a lot of discussion about spiritual warfare. Supernatural affliction, demonic attack, what is it, what do we do with it, how do we respond, that sort of thing. And without meaning to imply anything at all about those two books, let me just say there was backlash. A lot of folks, at least in the circles where I was, a lot of folks started saying, hold on. We, we do not, let's, let's not start seeing a demon behind every bush, okay? That was, that was a phrase that I heard a lot. It could just be, they would say, that that argument you had with your spouse might be because of personality, fatigue, and plain old ordinary sin. And it could be that your sickness is about biology and germs. And it could be that the accident that your friend at church got into, it seems that that's really a whole lot more about carelessness. So let's, let's not immediately assume the devil did it. There's not a demon behind every bush. So people were saying, you, you still hear that phrase today, I first heard it around that time, it's still common today, and of course, there is good reason for that caution so that we don't forget the other things like carelessness and personal sin. There's good reason for that. But I wonder, have we gone so far that we forget that there are indeed demons behind some of the bushes? Demons exist. The supernatural Spirit world is real, just as real as the physical world that you can see with your own eyes. Right now, just as real. Demons exist, 
angels exist. Demons are fallen angels. We see in the Gospels Jesus interacting with, with many demons, sometimes individually, sometimes in large masses. We, we read in the letters that Paul wrote to the church, sometimes he talks about the demonic, about the evil spirit realm. And in, in fact, we read in, in Ephesians 6 that such powers are our true enemies, not, not people. Paul tells us there in Ephesians 6 that it's the rulers and the authorities, not meaning human governments, meaning spiritual rulers and supernatural authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the spiritual realm, the demonic. That's what we're at war with. That's who's at war with us. Powers. Arrayed against all of humanity, and in particular, the people of God. With a certain amount of authority, a certain amount of, of rule in this fallen world, such that these powers can make things happen. Now, we in, in the rational West have a hard time believing that, but it's true in the scriptures, it's there. I heard a speaker some time back say, and maybe I've repeated this somewhere, perhaps you've heard this. He, he said, the world is alive. Meaning spiritually alive. Even though we don't realize it. But Jesus realized it, Paul realized it, and the psalmist of ancient Israel realizes it, and that's what brings us to Psalm 91. A comforting and reassuring psalm about God as refuge for his people. The idea raised, as we saw last week in Psalm 90, about God as dwelling place, it's expanded, it's repeated here and expanded by, it uses the same word, and it also uses many related concepts about, about refuge and shelter. God is refuge for us, protection from all sorts of trouble. That's good news. We should keep that in mind. We, sh we should think of the psalm. We think of all sorts of trouble. But in particular, especially, we should be thankful for something else here. He's protection from the powers, from wicked, evil, hateful, destructive, demonic powers. That's the particular focus of Psalm 91. You heard it read. I'm not going to work through it, and as we work through it, we'll see how it was sung and prayed, and we see some of the, the elements of it, and maybe get some guidance about how we should sing it and, and pray it ourselves. But, but this should bring, for the believer, this should bring great comfort and assurance. I'm going to make three observations from the passage, and here's the first. Those who trust the Lord have the Almighty as their protector. Those who trust the Lord have the Almighty as their protector. The psalm has two main sections, verses 1 to 13, which through it all has, though it has a couple of subsections which kind of repeat themselves in, in basic idea. It's, it's one unit that all hangs together and it has this language, especially of he and you, the psalmist talking about the faithful believer, about the believer and God. And then in the second part, verses 14, 14 to 16, the language changes and it becomes I and him. Maybe in your Bible even that's in quotes because it's God himself now making a statement, God himself speaking about the faithful believer and underlining what we saw in the first part, underlining it, reinforcing it, promising it, driving it home, this is the case for the one who's mine. It's, it's good news meant to encourage, encourage, strongly encourage the one who is in him. The person who is described in verse 14 and verse 9 and introduced to us in verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, that one is the one who will find that he or she abides in the shadow of who or what? In the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say to the Lord, to, to Yahweh, you see Lord written there in all capital letters trying to indicate to us that what's, what's there in the original is the name of God, Yahweh, and not just the title of Lord or Master. This is a particular Lord, Master, being written about here. We're talking about one particular ruler, one particular God, the one named Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who introduced himself to Moses and to us at the burning bush, saying, I am the I am. Of all the gods out there, and there are many gods out there. Now, we would want to quickly hasten to add in so-called gods. Yeah, because we know there is in fact only one true God, but there are many, many people in the world that worship the God of this or that or the other. Many. Even today, in countless other religions, of course, but this would be all the more prevalent back in that time when it would have been clear, present, out in the open. All the shrines and the idols on every hilltop and in every town, every city, every, every village square, there would have been something to this God or to that God or to the other God. Numerous local gods. Every people in every place had one. And they all covered different aspects of life. Some dealt with protection or health or fertility or weather or travel and so on. And they were not all pleasant, nice, or benign. They were often incredibly manipulative and controlling, and some of these gods were openly fierce or dangerous, if not properly appeased. This is important to understand for the context of this psalm. Because when we think about the gods of the ancient world, just talking about it there, we're kind of prone to maybe, maybe just experiences it kind of prone in our minds to, to lapse into one or two mistakes. Either we think of them as, as harmless, or we kind of think of them like we think of, of the God of the Bible as kind of you know, doing good things for people. Kind of think of them like that. Or probably more commonly, we think of them as make-believe. For example, something like, yes, I know, those people worshipped the goddess of fertility. Sure, they had one, altars, statues, praying and sacrificing to her so they could have children. Okay. We know, come on. We know that's the God of the Bible who opens and closes the womb. And he uses ordinary human means providentially to, to bring that about, to make that happen. So, I know they worshipped the goddess of fertility here and over there, but they weren't really dealing with anything real. They weren't really dealing with anything real. There's no goddess of fertility. that They made it up. So there's any real harm in that other than that they were deluded and they're led away from the true, real God. They're missing him. But really, it's just make-believe. We kind of think that about the gods. But we should probably think one more time around that and consider what Paul says quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 10. He's talking to Christians about food sacrifice to idols. And he wants to be very clear about two things. Those idols, they are not God, but they are not nothing. Four times he uses the word demon. They are not God. They are, in fact, demons. Demons, demons, demons. Worshipped as God, as the people who are drawn to worship them are, are deluded, are deceived into thinking of them as God. But there, there's something there. Religious worshipers turn to this. And think about it. Why would they turn to something and for centuries Worship and serve and bow down to and cry out to and hope and fear some entity. Well, because there's some power there. Something happens there. There's something to that. Some benefit 
if bowed down to, or, or some power that afflicts if not bowed down to. The goddess of fertility can't make babies, but she can kill them. And that strikes fear into the heart of every pregnant woman. Unless that pregnant woman knows a higher power. The most high power. The power named Yahweh. She who dwells in the shelter of that one will find that she abides in the shadow of the Almighty One, the One who rules over all those other powers. The One who rules over the One who would kill, destroy, steal, maim, deceive. The One who rules over that One, who rules over all the other rulers, who has authority over all the other authorities in this present darkness. The one who is king over all the princes. To that one, I say, says the psalmist, you are my God, my refuge, my fortress. You're the one in whom I trust. This is the follower of Yahweh, a believer. The New Testament term Christian doesn't quite fit here. It's chronologically out of order. Time before Christ, we wouldn't call them Christians. But that's who's in view here. This is about a believer in the Lord Yahweh. We would call Christian. The one who's praying this here, who trusts the Lord. And that helps us understand this trust of the Lord. You're the one in whom I trust, the very end of verse 2. Helps us to understand what's meant by all these layered metaphors about dwelling in the shelter or abiding in the shadow or make the Lord your dwelling place in verse 9 or hold fast to me in love in verse 14. There is no physical person to physically hold fast to. There is no physical place in which one can physically dwell. What's meant? Trust. They're all pictures of trust, of, of dependence. I hold fast to. I trust. I depend on. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I trust. I hold fast to. I abide in. I dwell in this Lord. Of course, there, there isn't that implied call to us to trust him day by day by day, but this isn't actually primarily first a call to trust him. It's a statement to the one who trusts. This is about a believer. Someone who says, of all the gods out there, I'm looking at a smorgasbord of gods in the world, Yahweh, he's mine, I'm his, I trust him. And that person can say, can know, so Christian, hear this, say this to yourself, pray this, know this, rest in it and rejoice in it. There's something good layered on here, not because of your own power, not because of your own wisdom or your own cleverness, your ability to outwit the powers around you, but because you trust him, faith only, you sit secure. Sheltered, kept in the shadow of the Almighty, the most high God of all power is your protector. What do you have to fear? That's what takes us to the second observation. Our protector secures us from the destruction of demonic attack. Our protector secures us from the destruction of demonic attack. So move into the heart of the psalm. So the introduction tells us who's, who's in view here and what's, what's our status. And then we move into the heart of the psalm and the threats that we need to be sheltered from get more attention, but it can be really easy reading this, especially in English, it can be easy for us to miss the, the center, what's, what's most acutely in view. 
the Lord indeed protects us from all kinds of threat and danger. And I would encourage you, use this psalm, pray this psalm, sing this psalm, think of this psalm, facing any trouble and any danger. Because if he's, if he's almighty, he's, he's mighty in all situations. So this, this works for everything. But there's something in particular in view. Something that's more of a focus here. Original readers clearly understood the psalmist meant protected from everything, and especially, particularly, he's a protector from destructive demons. We know they thought this because of how ancient Israel prayed and recalled this psalm in context of spiritual conflict, struggle, and warfare. It was recited in exorcism ceremonies. It's included in prayers and blessings used to ward off demons. It's, it's inscribed in tiny little print on household items and on things meant to be worn as kind of like a, a protector, a, a, a good luck charm against spirits. In fact, ancient versions of this psalm that are written in Greek have the, word, the Greek word demon in verses 5 or 6 or 10 trying to make clear in Greek what is implied in Hebrew. So let's look at those verses to see where they get that. In 5 and 6, having the Lord as shield, you need not fear. And there are four things listed there in verses 5 and 6. Both in the night and in the day, these things are not to be feared. Literally, there are four things from which we should not get fear. These four things, they are the allusion to the demons, the evil, wicked spirits. And demons were often named according to what people experienced from them, what they saw them do. So these are references to demons by what they saw them do. First, you will not fear from the terror of the night. And it's not, you will not be terrified of the night. There's something that causes night terror. And of that thing, you will not be afraid. Shielded by the Lord, you will not fear that. Nor will you get fear from the arrow that flies by day, according to scholars, an apparent reference to the Canaanite god Resheth, who was also called Lord of the Arrow. That's how it was perceived that he attacked people, slung arrows at his victims. Don't be in fear from the Lord of the Arrow nor from pestilence that stalks, that hunts in the darkness, nor from the destruction that wastes, literally the destruction that violently destroys, that devastates at noonday. Now, we read all those things in English, it, it seems like, well, it could be just ordinary things like plain old arrows. We read that, and it looks like that. And certainly if people shoot arrows at you, the Lord can shield you from arrows. Yes. But the thing that's, that's hard for us to see that's kind of written between the lines here is the connection that in those people's minds in that day, that those, those things made connections to things people feared, to beings people feared. Destroyers who destroyed. The gods of the world those who would strike down thousands or, or 10,000 at your side. You'll see that, verse 7. You'll see a 1,000 maybe fall at your side, maybe even 10,000, but it, the demonic power, it will not come near you. You see it afflict others, but you're shielded and it won't come near you. Verse 10, no evil, that is no evil spirit, will come near you, nor evil plague come near your tent. The psalm presents a threat to us, in particular, an evil, spiritual, demonic threat, which would have readily resonated in, in that day, but to a lot of us today, and I can imagine that even as I'm talking about this, even as I'm expressing some of the thoughts in these verses, that some of us are kind of thinking, well, good to know, but does that really exist today? I don't know. 
we Americans, we don't have the same conscious awareness of the dark spirit world that ancient peoples did or that peoples in other parts of the world even today do, and they do. Other parts of the world are, are very much in touch with spirits. And if we're honest, I just said we in the American West, this is in America too. Maybe not in our part of America, maybe not in yours, but I've read and I've spoken to people in this part of America, here, who would very much say, immediately say, and immediately testify to, to personal encounter with, personal familiarity with dark forces through the occult, through witchcraft, through seances, through Satanism, people who very much would say, as real as I am standing right here, that's, that's true, and I have met it. Something here we should be aware of and, and, and should see as real, but we don't often see it, and so we wonder, well, what, what does it look like? How does it present itself to us then? Well, we can get some idea of it but just by looking at the words in the passage or thinking about other portions of Scripture. It may present like plague and pestilence and terror and destruction. I myself have had experiences where at night I feel... I mean, make of this what you will. I don't, I don't know what to make of this, but where I feel afraid to look in that corner of the room. I don't know why that is. There's not a demon behind every bush. There are demons behind some of the bushes. So, you know, ju judge personal experience however you will judge it, but, but there are words here in this passage that Evil presents itself this way. Or we can look into the scriptures and the gospels show demonic oppression that causes seizure and disease and self-harm and maniacal behavior. It looks like insanity. And the book of Job shows a satanic attack behind military raids and natural disaster and disease and, and perhaps behind even some of the poor advice that his spouse and friends gave him. Maybe... We look at that and we see the demonic there. But on the other hand, demons are not just interested in destroying and, and causing havoc and pain purely to destroy and cause havoc and pain. Keep thinking about what verses 5 and 6 tell us won't be our problem. You won't fear. Demons are about, the, the darkness is about generating in people fear. Fear of this power. So that then fearing it, we will be peeled away from fearing God and turn to fearing it and responding to and respecting and heeding and appeasing Something else. Maybe ourself, maybe our own resources. Maybe some other agenda or some other ruler. In, drawn away, in some way peeled away from God to live oriented towards darkness, the world, anything other than God. And fear may work for that. And if that tactic works, that's the tactic evil will choose. On the other hand, though, Reward, accommodation, wealth, and success. That may well peel us away from God too. Or deception, or outright lies, or half-truths. Did God really say, don't eat that fruit? You know why God said that, because he's not good. He's not actually for you. There's no harm in that, just deception. Whatever tactic works, by any means necessary. Dark forces seek to peel human beings away from the one who is good so as to destroy people in unbelief. Day by day by day and finally at the end under judgment 
to destroy people as a means of attacking God, the one whom they hate. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's good creation. And so they stalk us and attempt to peel us away so as to peel away the thing made most like him and cast it down and to destroy us in unbelief. This is their game constantly, relentlessly. The spiritual forces of evil that are real all around us are engaged in a constant, relentless, never-ceasing guerrilla warfare against you and every other human being on earth. Maybe raging in violence, maybe pouring more money into your hands than you know what to deal with. Maybe just whispering lies in your ear. Whatever works, whatever works, just to peel you away from dependence on God. That's a threat all of the world faces. It's a human problem. And it's what our protector shields those who trust him from. So this is, this is a great encouragement for Christians, but I hope you see that if you're not a Christian, the obvious call here is, this is a danger you face. Come and be shielded. Come to Christ and be shielded. So what does a shielding look like? Well, probably given that half the time we don't realize we're under attack, half the time we're oblivious what the shielding looks like. But we can, in some ways, discern it by working backwards against the attacks. Maybe he shields us physically from harm. In total, and we should pray for that, but maybe only to degree, Job comes to mind again, right? When, Satan said to, when, when God said to Satan, this far with Job, no farther, Satan ran right up to the line and could not go past. God clearly displaying, I'm the one who has all might. I determine, I draw the line here. He's the one who reigns, but he did not shield Job completely from physical harm. He could, but he didn't. We should ask for that. We should know that he loves us. We should trust ourselves to him and say, please shield us from physical harm. But we should also realize that maybe, wisely in love, he will use physical harm to shield us from some other worse attempt to pry us away. Maybe to shield us from faithless ease and comfort. God knows, God, God knows what real destruction looks like and he will reign almighty to keep us in faith, to keep us near him. He knows what the issue really is, the peeling away from him and he will do in his might, in his wisdom, whatever is needed to keep us, to preserve us, his people. This is God's agenda in our lives all the time, in fact, to grow us in faithful joyful dependence on him. Because that's what God's doing always, we don't actually need to discern. Is this demonic or is this, is this just about germs? Is this demonic or just about carelessness or, or both? Is this temptation that, that I'm, I'm, I'm facing and, and being wooed by, is that coming from a demon or from the world or from my own fallen flesh or some combination of the three? You don't really need to know that. We can't sort it out, and we don't need to. We're just called to, in faith, trust him, in faith, rest in the fact that what this psalm tells us you have a God who is a protector. And if there is, in fact, a demon behind that bush, God sees him. You don't. He does. He sees him, and he has it all in hand, and he reigns over him in all might, and you can trust him. We have nothing to fear from these powers. We are not their prey. He will deliver you from the trap, from the snare laid for you. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. That is a sweet picture. See, it's graphically depicted. Wings covering like, 
like a great bird or like, like a hen drawing her young near, sheltered under her wings, drawn near to her warmth, experiencing her presence. That's the Lord God Almighty for us, his people, never leaving us nor forsaking us. You see, raging darkness. Or you think maybe there's raging darkness. See the wings. Rest. Be, be aware. Pray. Be conscious. Lord, there, there's threat out there. I have an enemy who is stalking me night and day and night and day and night and day. Be aware of that. But don't be afraid of it. You have a sovereign God who is a protector of his people. You have no need to fear evil. And for help in trusting him, we turn to the third and final observation. See the love of God in Jesus sent to defeat the evil one for us. See the love of God in Jesus, sent to defeat the evil one for us. Verses 14 to 16 are tremendously encouraging and reassuring. As we noted earlier, the language changes and, and the, the promises and the hope in the first part now become underlined and emphasized as God himself speaks them. For whom? Who's this for? Verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. The one who holds fast to him in love, the one who knows his name, that's who it's for. Well, who's that? Well, you want it to be you. You need it to be you. And we've been assuming that it's about you. It's about believers a Christian. And it is. It is. But we should back up and walk slowly towards that conclusion because as we do that, the process of walking slowly towards that conclusion, I'm going to give away the end, it is in fact you, Christian. But as we walk slowly towards that, the process itself of walking towards that, that will serve to reinforce our love of this God. That will serve to reinforce our, our trust of him as we see him so good. That's going to tighten our grip on him, which is part of the defense against the peeling away. Part of how God's going to protect us from such attack, we'll find that as we walk slowly towards the solution and say, how does this become my psalm? It is, but how? So look at this and see God's love and mercy and grace displayed here at the end. How does this get to be about me? By first and foremost being about Jesus. The faithful one. The one who trusts God, his Father. The one who always and perfectly and completely made the Lord his dwelling place, sought refuge in him. Especially during that time of focused demonic assault in the wilderness. You recall the event. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days tempted by the demonic all along, the Gospels tell us. Didn't just start at the end, it was all along, paralleling the 40 years of Israel, God's first corporate son of Israel in the wilderness, when Israel was tempted and fell into sin. Can Satan peel away this son, this Jesus? Can he peel him away from faithful dependence on God? And if so, God's salvation plan will be ruined. Tempted for 40 days, alone, 
hungry, hurting, attacked, no divine comfort, no food, no divine encouragement, no honor, no sense of favor, no smile from heaven, just stalked by terror at night and destruction every noonday, like jackals circling a lone animal, glaring and, and yipping and snapping at the heels. 40 days, and then Satan himself appears at the end. The great final three temptations, the heart of which, at the core of all three of them, is an attempt to peel away Jesus and cause Jesus to doubt the fatherly goodness, wisdom, and power of God for him. To peel him away and turn him towards listening to and following the advice, the counsel of Satan and trusting to him own, his own self and his own resources. It's the same basic threat we face. The same one Israel faced and failed under and that we would fail under too. We're not that strong. We, we can't tangle with those powers. What about Jesus? If you're the son of God, which you are, right? I mean, you are. I, mean, I think you are. It sure seems like you are. Are you? If you're the son of God, then throw yourself down from here, from this dwelling place of God, and make him stop the silence, and make him act to intervene and do you good. He'll have to, he promised, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes verses 11 and 12. What a clever temptation. Satan pulls up against the alone, broken, hungry son and says, since you and I both know Psalm 91 is about you and I. Since you and I both know that Psalm 91 is where God promises to protect you from my attack of you, isn't it about time that happened? How long has it been? When did you last eat? When did anybody respect you for who you are? When did you have a decent night's rest? You're the king. You're the son. You're the ruler, aren't you? You're supposed to be, aren't you? This is such a clever temptation. Well, if you are, then this is the promise of God to you. You should just you should stand up and make him deliver. Make him stop the silence and act on your behalf. Take my advice and do that, Jesus. And Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. No, I'll trust him. He held fast to his father in love and was delivered and so became the one, of verse 13, who trampled underfoot the prowling lion and crushed the head of the serpent. And that, so that this psalm could be yours. Not for you who perfectly trust God always and make him your dwelling place in the face of all attack and who perfectly hold fast to him in love. It's hard for us to read 1 and 2 and 9 and 14 and say, yep, that's me. I hold fast to him in love. Not always. This is not for those who hold fast to him in love. There isn't anybody who did that other than Jesus this psalm is for you who trust Jesus to do that in your place. And he did for all of us who couldn't. And he did this not incidentally. He did this on purpose. God sent him to earth to face down, to fight and to triumph over these powers that would destroy us. God sent him into the wilderness on purpose to do battle with Satan and to defeat him. 
because God wants to be a protector to his people. He knows who the enemy is. He knows what the threat is like. And he wants to protect you from that. So he did not only, it's, it's hard to say only, and talk about the, the work of, of atoning for my sin on the cross. But he did not, that's such a, a massive thing, it doesn't seem to fit only, but he did not only atone for my sin on the cross. He did not send Christ only to, to pay for your sin. He sent Christ also to defeat your mortal enemy and to put you in a spot where you can then say and can know, this is me, this is mine. There are forces, powers too big for me, hate me, stalk me, hunt me, set traps for me. And I'm safe. In Christ, you who know his name, Christian, God the Father says, 14, 15, 16, in Christ, I will deliver you. I will protect you. Listen to all the I will. When you call, I will answer. I will be with you in trouble. I will rescue you. I will bestow on you honor, favor. I will bless you with long life forever. I will show you my salvation. This is a secured, favored, blessed life. In the face of all attack. This is the life led into the valley of the shadow of death. Not just physical death. Led into the, into the valley of where there is a spiritual death threatened. And this is a God then who sets a table for you and says, let's sit down and have a meal because you're fine. You're safe here. This is the life of the kingdom. In Christ you need not fear. Never fear the powers that oppose you. They cannot thwart. They cannot overcome the one who is in Christ, sheltered in the shadow of the Almighty. That's God's will for you, you fortunate Christian. Accomplished for you in Christ on purpose because he loves you and wants you to have that kind of sheltering and wants you to know it. Be aware of the world you live in and run from it into the arms of a God who says, I will keep you. And you hear in that, if you're not a Christian today, you hear in that, that's, that's the offer to you too. I'm, there, sometimes... As I talk with people, sometimes I, I, I talk with someone who is very much skeptical of the existence of the spiritual realm at all. And other times I talk to people who are very much aware of it in touch with it. The Bible just says it is. It's a threat that you face. But it does not have no solution. It has one solution. And he invites you to come. To come to Christ and because of Christ's victory and Christ's power, find shelter from the powers. That's a great offer to you. Take him up on it. It's an offer made to you honestly, straightforwardly, in love. Come be sheltered. Come be rescued. That's what's accomplished for you in Christ. Christian, that's where you are. Rejoice and rest in it. When you face trouble, maybe it's got demonic power behind it, maybe it doesn't. Who can tell? Sometimes it feels like it. Sometimes it doesn't. Who can be sure? It's there, though, somewhere. It's always there after you. Take up Psalm 91. Pray, rest, and rejoice. Let me pray. Father, you're good. You're good to send Jesus to triumph over this threat for us.
Thank you. Lord, I, I don't know, but maybe there are some in the room who are particularly in touch with darkness, with its power. Would you deliver them? I mean that as broadly as it needs to be, you, you know. Would you save, perhaps, for the first time? Will you, will you bring to life? Will you make people Christian believers? Maybe that's what save means for certain people here. And maybe, on the other hand, there are Christians hard-pressed and under attack, tempted and tried, fearing, hurting. Would you reach out your sovereign hand and deliver them and show them your power. Keep them near you. And I pray even relieve them from temptation. Cast away all attackers. I don't know what's needed, but you do. So will you reign over your church? Will you reign over your world? Will you exalt your own name? Will you save and deliver your people? Save us day by day by day. Make us to rest in joy worshiping you. Thank you, Lord. We trust this all to you. We trust ourselves to you and to your care. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.